1: My dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy.
0: And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Ryan Murphy is a founder, which is definitely going to be discussed in today's conversation and going to become very clear in today's conversation, but he's also a CEO and he's a CEO of a company that has a team that's over 1,200 team members and over $350 million in growth equity um, raised on their part and they're valued at over a billion dollars. So he has a big job as a CEO And he's also an entrepreneur, an investor, and he's constantly learning and chasing possible. That's what he says throughout today's conversation. He's curious. He loves to learn. And he also is always trying to figure out problems. And that's what he means by chasing possible. He founded and leads ReliaQuest, which is a force multiplier of security operations and one of the largest and fastest growing companies in the global cybersecurity market. And Murph, as he goes by, is going to talk about the toll that that's taken and that he's constantly on the road. And it's been hard being a CEO and founder, especially over the last 16 years. But he's grown ReliQuest from a bootstrapped startup to a high-growth unicorn, as I mentioned, with a valuation of over a billion dollars. The company is headquartered in Tampa, Florida, with operation centers in Tampa, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, Dublin, London, Amsterdam, and even in India. So... I think you're going to love this conversation with Brian. You're going to find him to be a leader. You're going to find him to be someone who thinks about values and culture. And most importantly for this conversation, he thinks about mindset. And one thing I do want to flag is we recorded this over the computer and over the course of our conversation and our talk, I noticed that Brian's speech was glitching out a little bit. I didn't find it too distracting. Hopefully you won't find it too distracting and stay with us because Brian has some amazing nuggets and gems to share and we went over it and we felt like it was still high enough quality to share with all of you. So hopefully you enjoy Brian. So here is Brian Murphy. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were connected by Darren McMaines, who I connected with years ago. Uh, when he was working with the Seattle Mariners and he came to town, he was actually in Baltimore. I'm in the DC area. And I remember we grabbed lunch and we talked sports psychology and I really enjoyed that conversation. Since then we had him on the podcast. Uh, and since then he's also changed his path and his journey a little bit as far as helping you all and what you're doing at ReliaQuest. And so I wanted to start there. It's interesting because I've had on a lot of CEOs on the podcast, but none of them have actively I would say hunted or seeked out mental performance coaches to come work alongside them. And I said to you, before you started recording, your people actually reached out to me at one point and I had a conversation with someone uh, and I knew you were looking for full-time people that were going to pour into your employees as mental performance coaches. And certainly I know of executive coaches that work inside organizations or people with organizational psychology backgrounds that work in the human resources department. But I wanted to start by the theory and the vision that perhaps you had on bringing in mental performance coaches into the organization and and where that came from.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Brian, thanks for having me on. Really excited about this and I love the topic. And you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'm the founder of ReliQuest, CEO. Been doing this 16 years, and going back to 2012 timeframe, uh, I was reading a Sports Illustrated article or an ESPN headline that talked about uh, Nick Saban's, uh, you know, uh, advantage or, or brain doctor, as I think is what they they called it. And the article is uh, about the use of a, a guy named Trevor Moad um, who worked with Saban and Jimbo Fisher, and it just talked about performance and how they you know how you think impacts how you feel how you feel impacts how you perform and um i'm a florida state alumni i thought that was interesting at the time ReliQuest was i don't know 100 and 100 people maybe you know we're over 1200 today and uh we're rapidly growing technology company and you're always looking for an edge in tech and as you're as you're growing you want to maintain your your mindset your culture you want to Um, add people rapidly to service the demand of the customer, but keep that continuity that allowed you to get to that growth phase in the first place. And I I was just thinking of the parallels of college football and the amount of times their roster changes over every year or coach leaves and uh, people are coming in and out of that organization constantly. And so reached out to the athletic director of Florida State. He got me in touch with Trev and Trev flew down ahead of a Florida state home game. We're in Tampa. It's a four hour drive uh, for him from here and um, you know, connected. And uh, he just said, look, uh, you know, uh, everyone says it's mindset to everything and mentals, to everything. Trev's opinion was it's 5% and so's luck. So I, if, if you're great, I can help you get a little bit better. If you're average, I'm probably not the guy that's going to help you. And, and we just had a great conversation and he understood what I was trying to do. I was trying to bring drive clarity which would allow for consistency, which ultimately opens the door for consistent performance, right? And I've just always believed in business. We talk about momentum in sport all the time, but momentum in business is critical. And you can have good momentum and bad momentum. And in cybersecurity, you know, the the, the highs are highs and the lows are lows. And you're you're trying to defend the largest organizations in the world for breaches day in and day out. How do we normalize our thinking? And I just uh hit it off with Trev. We built a program and um it it, it blossomed from there. Trev introduced us to uh to DMAC and uh, DMAC came full time with us for 2020. So it started as how do I get an edge? And and if this can help an athletic team, why can't it help a fast-growing tech business and and help us be more decisive and you know focus on the fix, not the fault, right? Just some of these things that I think they do so well in sport because there's a shot clock, there's a there's a time, a beginning, middle and end of a game. And in business we don't have that luxury, so we can kind of kick the can down the road a little bit. We'll decide tomorrow, we'll decide tomorrow. So I had a lot of common themes that I believed in uh where I the weight is my, my least four letter word or at least favorite four letter word, right? And so it just it just made sense and I I felt like I was surprised that more people weren't doing it and thought it would give us an edge. And it has, it's allowed us to scale rapidly, um, but still have a massive amount of clarity in the organization around why we exist and the problem that we're solving.
0: Why do you think more people don't invest in it?
1: I think um, it's interesting. I think a lot of people think of it as a keynote, like a point in time. We're going to bring in this you know, performance coach, this, you know, sports psychologist or mental performance um, executive coach, and they're going to do a key. You keynote at our leadership conference, so we're going to do a, a a four hour session, right? And and you know, I had experimented with all kinds of different training over the years. At the time that Trev came in, uh, we were had been in business five years, and I wanted something that was ours, that was in our tone. Um, but honestly, I think there's a lot of fear in, hey, is this going to be gimmicky? Or a lot of people think that there are different types of performance. Like, of course, athletes have to think this way because they're professionals, and you know, they're pros, but the average person coming to a corporate office is not going to want to think like this. And I had some fear of that. Are people going to think this is crazy and cheesy? And and some people do. And what you realize is they're not a fit for the organization, right? But largely everybody, I believe, wants to get a little bit better. And I just don't know that executives are willing to take that risk. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big gamble to uniformly drive that across the organization and do it in an unapologetic way. That's a tough shift
0: and you mentioned Trevor, who has since passed away yeah. uh, tragically and, and early. Um, and if you had the chance to stand up and share a few words about Trevor at his funeral, like what would you share about Trevor that you got to observe or witness or interact with?
1: I'd say for me and Trev, and I got really close. We you know, you used to talk to somebody once a week for years, uh, you, you get to know somebody. He was the most, sincere and giving person I've ever been around. He just taught you that whatever you could share, share. If you had a contact, if you could help somebody, if you could connect somebody, there was never uh, a feeling of, hey, what's what's going to be good for Trev? If it was good for the individual, he did it. And he, he didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. Um, he was so authentic and sincere uh, that he could – talk to you about some real stuff and give you some really personal feedback. But uh, you knew it was coming from a great place and you knew he authentically just cared about you. And it takes a talent to be able to just win over that type of uh, trust with people that in most cases don't trust a lot of people, right? They have really tight inner circles for a reason. And Trev just He's just a, he's just a miraculous, uh, human being. He really was just a good person. Um, and, and his ability to communicate and connect with so many people at different levels, but still be authentically himself was, it was just amazing to watch. I learned something every time I talked to him.
0: Is there one skill that he possessed that you aspire to possess in your leadership style?
1: I think he understood, um, he gave everyone and everything the benefit of the doubt. He understood that people get it to where they are differently. He didn't judge. Uh, he didn't, you know, criticize. He, didn't, he was always just looking for better. And I remind myself all the time from just working with Trav of like, just stepping out of the situation and thinking, okay, like is what I'm doing helpful to this person, to this thing, to this moment? Like he just always wanted to help. Um, when he needed to be amped up, he was amped up. When he needed to be calm, he needed to be calm. And um, he just knew the moment, if that made sense. He had this ability to zoom out and understand the density of the situation and how to approach it. Um, so he, he just, that's something that I always strive to be uh, as good as Trev and uh, I'm, I miss him dearly.
0: And I would probably say my world is more aligned from a business standpoint with where Trevor was and where he was going. And I know he was entrepreneurial and he was creating things and he was just getting started. Um, But for me, one of the differences between me and Trevor uh, and someone like you is you've got 1200 people. And uh, for me, like I don't have that many people that I'm interacting with every day. And so when I hear 1200 people, where my mind goes to, man, how do you focus? And how do you decide what to focus on? And for people like me or Trev that serve clients and, you know, don't have the weight of 1,200 people on our on our shoulders, so to speak, I think it can be easier for us to prioritize and to focus. So how do you make sure that you're prioritizing your time, your energy, um, your thoughts? Uh, what do you do to focus and to make sure you're directing your attention to the right things at the right times?
1: Well, I, you know, it, I think first it starts with um, having clarity of the target. What's, what, what are we running towards? And so we have this planning process that we call I will, we will, right? And so uh, my direct reports, I don't call them executives. I just think that term, I believe in the burden of leadership, not the benefit. And so I, I call them owners because they own the outcomes of everything they sign up their organization. So if you run sales, your I will, we will, whether it's a weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annual goal. That's somebody working with me standing up in front of their teammates saying, I will do this. And we, my organization will do this. And you can count on me to do what I said I was going to do. And once you have that clarity, and then we communicate that plan, which we call how we communicate at ReliQuest, leave no doubt, like leave no doubt. Don't get off the phone until there's a massive amount of clarity around the intent of why you called, whether it's a customer, a candidate, a prospect. So once we communicate, it just comes down to execution. And so for me, I look at my prioritization of what is the most important use of my time right now, right? And so, what matters the most? What is the next right decision I can make? And ultimately, at twelve hundred people, um, it's how do I support my team? How do I support that owner team? And then who am I developing in the organization? Is there a you know a, a high talent person that's rising through the organization? How do I advise and, and mentor? So I do, uh, you know, I've got to be a good coach. I've got to be a good listener as a CEO. Um, and I'll tell you the most important thing that I've learned as we've gotten larger is it's not about what I should do and focus on is what I should not be doing. Sometimes it's the things that you need to stop doing. And so as you grow, I've learned I can't jump into that meeting and take it over. I, I can't, um, you know, have the idea and want to drive it through the organization. So I just tend to think about what's going to be the most helpful for me to go spend my time. And that might be in front of a customer. Um, hopefully it's, it's doing, it's doing great podcasts like this to get that message out there. Cause the 1200 teammates. They listen to things in different mediums and different places. And so, um, you know, for me, it's around what are I, what we will commitments. And then where am I going to be the most helpful spending my time? Uh, and that it's, uh, it's tricky, but it keeps it fun.
0: There's a lot that we could pull on from what you just talked about. But the thing that you said in the beginning of that was the benefit of leadership versus the burden of leadership. Can you go into that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, you know, we, we in the movies and I think in corporate America, people you know climb the the corporate ladder and they get these big titles. And I want people to understand the weight and the responsibility that comes along with a title. And there's not a, a perk or a Benny. And I think sometimes we forget um, and I've seen it and especially in large corporations where it's, you know, what do I get access to now that I have this title? I just look at it differently. I'm like, what are you responsible for now that you have that title? And if you think about the burden of leadership, you really, um, you, you become more self-aware and you ask like, Hey, where am I best to use my time? And how do I, who can I help in my organization to make sure that we get to that end goal? And so I look for people that are over themselves when I hire them. Like, I don't want any, I don't like, you know, everyone has an ego, but I don't need anybody flashy someone that's looking to leverage the organization. And one test that I do is are they, when, when, when there's an idea or something comes about in the company, are you trying to do something for ReliaQuest or to ReliaQuest? And that kind of fits into that grandstanding. It's, it's not about me. It's about the broader we, right? And so that's what I mean by burden of leadership is there's a responsibility that comes with raising your hand and committing to something.
0: When I hear you say it's people that have gone over themselves, I think of the San Antonio Spurs who use that phrase. Yep. and I'm sure you're aware of that. And then I just finished watching Ted Lasso. So I've got Ted Lasso in mind. <laughs> and there's a bunch of examples in Ted Lasso that speak to that as well. And as I think about the Spurs, or I think about Ted Lasso, or I think about any sports coach or team, I also think about, well, who's taking care of the CEO? Who's taking care of the head coach? How are they making sure that that burden doesn't go too far and that weight doesn't go get too heavy that they sink? Um, So what are some things that you do to make sure that, yes, I am responsible for those 1200 people and I need to be able to sleep at night and I need to be able to be healthy and I need to be able to uh, make good decisions like you were talking about earlier? What do you do to sort of put your mask on first so that you can serve other people?
1: Good question. I, having DMAC helps oftentimes, whether it's a weekly meeting, standing ownership meeting, or our extended owners' meetings, um, or me just standing up and we had 76, uh, 78 new people start in a new hire onboarding class yesterday. And so stand in front of them and welcome the company. I always follow up and having somebody that, and that's DMAC for me of, hey, how'd I do? Uh, what should I have done better? Um, I bring them things it might be a, a personal thing. I've got two kids a 14 year old and a 17 year old been married to my wife for 18 years. And um, I get worried about them as much as I do the business. And I think for me, it's an active practice of compartmentalizing what's going on and not letting four things merge into one big thing. And, that, and so it's just keeping it all separate. And wish I wish I would have learned it earlier on in my entrepreneurship journey, um, is, is talking out loud a little bit more about how I'm feeling, especially my wife, um, early on, you know, just feeling as this provider mentality, I bootstrapped the business for nine years without outside capital. We had, you know, a little over $600,000 of personal debt and credit cards and second mortgages, and just didn't want to fail. And I'd keep it all inside and wouldn't communicate. And that was the worst thing I could have been doing in our marriage as we had young kids and everything else. So now it's, coming home and saying, Hey, this was tough today, or I've got this going on, or this is really weighing on me um, to just to give people a way to communicate. And it's also sharing with my team members around me. If I've got something going on with a family member or something going on in the business, a data point I'm curious about. I talk out loud about it with a lot of the people that I work with um, on our owner's team. And I think they need to see that vulnerability. They need to see that, I've got real things going on also. Um, and I'm not crying or whining about it. Um, but I can't walk around and act like everything's easy, right? Cause it's supposed to be hard. So that those are some of the tactics that I use. I'm not great at it. Um, health is always something that I sacrifice. Um, you know, you, you, you eat for comfort. Sometimes you're for most of the time growing or quest. I've traveled 90% of the week. And so, uh, that's something I've always struggled with and I've just got myself on a good cadence, but um you know those are some of the things i'm i'm definitely not perfect in any one of those areas
0: traveling 90% of the week what do you do to help raise two kids if they're 14 and 17 now what have you done to try to be present for them if if there is the 10% that you're around um and what's that been like for you as you've been on the road a lot and i'm sure a lot of the burden, so to speak falls on your wife Uh, But what's it been like for you as, as a dad going through this experience? Uh, I think you said over the last 16 years, but over the last nine years, as well as, as far as uh, what you've been doing.
1: Yeah, it's um, Renee's amazing. I mean, she's done such an amazing job with, with our, our children. Uh, She's a great partner, shows a lot of grace uh, to me on the road. I think um, when I'm home, it's Trev used to say, you know, be where your feet are, right. And really be focused on um on being in that moment, um, trying to make when the times that we do get away together, spring breaks are sacred to our family and making sure we, you know, whether it's a staycation or go on a trip, that we do something fun, we can go see something and experiencing something. As the kids have gotten older, it's gotten fun is just telling them what I'm doing and what I'm working on. And um, you know, as much as phones and uh, you know, I, I hate that their heads are buried in an iPhone most of the time. It does make it pretty easy to communicate with them. I'm not calling a central house phone trying to talk to them uh, once, uh, you know, uh, once every night. But I'd say that as we've gotten larger, that travel demand has backed off also. And so, being thoughtful of, I don't need to be every place at once. And what's most important now, and prioritizing some of those graduations and sporting events and and those things. So it's, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it, you have to do, you know, you've got to do the work uh, that's required along the way. But every, every moment of time can't be the most important moment of time. So it's just being realistic that you can't be locked in and engaged all the time. It can, you know, the sky can't always be falling. That's what wears out your family and everybody around you and wears yourself out. Um, so learning to, hey yes, is that, that, that could be an issue, but is me jumping on a plane and going there going to make it any better. Probably not helpful. So it's learning when to let go.
0: You talked about the vision earlier. And I think about a sports coach and we were sort of referencing sports coaches. A difference between sports and business is that there are seasons in sports and we know the seasons. And so when I work with people in pro sports, we talk about, Hey, when's the draft, when's free agency, when's the trade deadline. Uh, When are the playoffs? When's preseason? Like let's lay out the calendar and create some boundaries for when it's not in season to ensure that you're filling your cup and you're taking care of yourself or you're spending time with the family. And I think in sports, you know, there's, there's a push and pull here in sports. Travel is almost always necessary. It's unavoidable. Whereas in business it can be avoidable for a lot of businesses I don't know the ins and outs of your business and whether it's avoidable, but there is a start and stop to the season and there is a championship and then it starts over again and it rinses and repeats. In the case of your world, you've taken in capital. um, So the word exit often comes up as an end road or a vision. We're trying to get this thing to an exit. Usually when people give money to a company, they're hoping to get that money back at least and they're hoping to get Money back on top of that money in addition to that. And so I'm curious for you how you do think about the vision and how you think about this. Is this a marathon? Is this a sprint? Um, you've been in it for a while. Um, what are the differences as you see it between where you're at today and where you're hoping to go? And how does that play a role in the vision that you set out?
1: Yeah, a lot of it is market driven. I mean, cybersecurity, the addressable market is a, you know, it's a 40 plus billion dollar market that we're chasing in cyber and the problem that we solve. And so uh, you have to sprint the marathon and and in some sense that uh, you have to capture market share. You can't fall behind. Cybersecurity is a noisy space. So you need to be at those conferences. You need to be speaking at those opportunities. You have to be in front. Our customers are large global 2000 companies. So they want to see you. They want to be in front of you. Um, You know, and how I think about that exit is, um, you know, are we... we we still haven't gotten close to capturing as much market share as I think we could. We're still solving the problem that needs to be solved. Um, And I just kind of measure things really by asking three questions, you know, is this good for the shareholder? Is it good for our team? Is it good for the customer? And I've yet to be able to say um, no to one of those three. So as long as I can say yes to all three, we keep doing it. And so I look at, investors come and go. And that's why you can have a growth stage investor, a late stage investor, a crossover investor There's publicly traded. And so I think it's really, is the problem that you solve still relevant to the market? And that's um, that's how I think. And I I measure myself on two things. I've never missed a payroll except my own, and I've never not made an investor money. And so I have to be really thoughtful around the problem that we solve. Are we directionally correct? Or is the market moving towards us? Um, and as long as we feel like we're capturing market share, we got to keep going. Now, does that mean I'm always going to be best fit to be the, the CEO, I'll always be the founder of the company? Um, but you know, I can't answer that now. But at the beginning of every year, I'm unqualified for 16 years to be the CEO because the company's never experienced you know, a lot of what the new year is going to bring. And um, so I just am trying to be real thoughtful around, am I keeping up with the business Um, am I still putting the same attitude, energy, and effort behind it? Um, and am I, you know, showing the respect, am I carrying the burden of the business correctly? Um, that's the benefit of having shareholders too, is they're going to let you know, uh, when you're, when you're doing a good job, when you're not. So I, a lot of that I can control, um, some of it I can't, but as long as we're directionally correct, I'm going to keep going. I do talk to the family about it a lot. You know, my daughter's getting to a point where she's getting ready to go to school and, um, you know, what do you guys want to do and how far can we go? And it's been a fun run. We have the ReliQuest Bowl and we're doing a bunch of other stuff that's uh, interesting on, on the background. So to me, the vision is not impacted by my personal wants. Um, the, the vision is around the problem that we solve. And as long as we're still solving that problem, we have a responsibility. As, you know, cybersecurity is the greatest techno- technical challenge of our generation. We have a responsibility to keep solving that problem. And so I'm second to that, if that
0: makes sense. So it's interesting, Brian, as you talk about who you serve and that you do have investors that you're serving and shareholders, and you do have your team and you do have your customers. I think about a restaurant in this situation. And restaurants are easier for me to understand than cybersecurity, even though I'm based right outside Washington, DC. And we just had this whole thing with a, a sonic boom over our city. Um, but I understand restaurants, and so for me, a restaurant is a really good example of who do they serve. Because if I am sitting at a restaurant and I get my food and it doesn't taste the way that I hoped it would taste, the restaurant can decide: is the customer right? Is the waiter right? Is the chef right? Um, like who who are we first? And we see this a lot in retail: like is the customer always right? Or is the employee right? And I know I've been at jobs where my bosses will back the customer over me, the employee. Um, And then we go one step further. You've got shareholders who are looking to maximize profit. And so I find it to be a a complicated challenge for people. And I, I understand when they're all aligned. And it's a yes, great. But even if we just focus, forget the shareholders for a second, how do you create a culture that make sure that you're taking care of your employees and the customer. Maybe we just focus on those because that might be more relevant for the listener uh, than than shareholders per se.
1: Yeah, for me, it's making it right for the customer, and and whether it's not really the customer's always right, it's making that moment right for the customer. Whatever that outcome the customer wants, let's make it right for the customer. Well if it's wrong for the customer, that doesn't mean that someone on our end has to be wrong about something or has to be disciplined. And I think the way you do it is you remove the concept of fault out of it. Just, you know, and so the thing that I do with all, all of our leaders is whoever the, the highest, you know, person is in the room, whatever the problem is, own the fault. Like, so if I'm in that room and I'm with a customer, hey, that's on me. I uh, apologize that happened. Let's get you let's, we'll we'll talk about how it happened later, but let's get you to that outcome now. And then as a team, what can we learn from? And we deal in high pressure situations. So a customer may call up and uh, they could be in a, they could be in a bad mood. They could be under a ton, a lot of pressure. So what we try to teach our teams internally is you never know what's going on in that person's life or that person's environment. So let's just listen for the outcome they're trying to to get to, and let's get them to that outcome. And we got your back here at ReliQuest. We have a big team. We have a lot of talent. Um, we're not going to take anybody out back and punish them because of one situation. So for me, the only time that we talk about, you know, sit somebody down and uh, and say, hey, we, we should have done this better is when it's an effort thing, when we just didn't put the effort in to helping the customer. But mistakes, and they happen all the time. That's, uh, you know, that's technology. And so I think if you remove fault, you know, someone... Uh, to make something right for someone, then you don't need to find someone to pin blame on uh, uh, to make make it right for the customer. And that's, that's, I I just kind of separate those two things.
0: I love that. You, You said something earlier that caught my attention, which is every year you're unqualified to be the CEO because you're continuing to evolve. And every year you have to look in the mirror and you're sort of saying you're unqualified. If I pair that with this idea of vulnerability that you mentioned earlier and that you're, ability to share, Hey, like I'm going to screw up. I'm going to make mistakes. uh, I'm going to have issues personally and professionally. I'm curious on the flip side of that, because at some point, they need to look at you and believe that you're the right person for the job, believe you're qualified, that you're competent, that you are going to lead them in the right direction. So how do you bring out the vulnerability and humility to say, hey, I'm still a work in progress while still saying to them, hey, trust me, um, I'm going to make the decision. And if it's wrong, it's on me, but uh, let's all row the boat in the same direction. Like, how do you thread that 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 line or that needle, so to speak?
1: It's, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing. I think um, for me, what I've learned over time is people want to know you're a real person. Um, and I do it through storytelling. Mac has helped me out a lot about this. Like talk about tough times in the past. I kind of view being unqualified to be the CEO for things that haven't happened yet. Most people can understand that, but I use that as a way to talk about, we have to allow our past successes to embolden us for things that, we haven't encountered yet like a pandemic or a great recession and so i i tell the stories of hey we built this technology it failed for this customer we got together because of that failure we were able to find something that ended up being one of our major product offerings so telling the story behind things and making it okay for people to make a mistake doesn't you know mistakes and momentary losses are not failures, right? And the beauty of business is if you don't quit, you can't fail. And I think you just tell those stories along the way that sometimes uh, big mistakes yield great results. Uh, and, and I think it's just making it
0: okay. So I think storytelling is really important and inspiring for people. And you are in the business of data so I would imagine there's a time to rely on story and there's a time to rely on data. Uh, you're obviously big on making good decisions, making decisive decisions. How do you blend data and and sort of gut or or story or experience uh, when you're making decisions?
1: Um, data is important. I mean, numbers don't lie, right? But um, you also have to, you know, There's I kind of look at, I feel like I'm responsible for two things, the mindset, of the organization, like how we think about the business, how we make decisions, how we approach the things that come towards us and the pace of the business, like how fast we're moving. And I use data around the pace and what are we moving too fast? So do we, are we having too many faults? Or are things breaking too much? Are we churning too many customers? Are we not moving fast enough, right? We're not reaching people fast enough. And so those are the two things and it is part data, part feel. I think that data can tell you where to go look, but data cannot tell you how to make a decision around something like that takes a human element, the last mile of decision making. You have to take all of your experiences together, trust your teammates. But data is going to help you go uh, know where to shine the flashlight know where to look around and get a sense of, because um, data is not going to tell you what's going wrong. It's just going to tell you something's underperforming. So you have to go dig around in that area. So it's a blend for me. Um, I find that people that are too data centric um, miss too many things in business. Uh, they're just, they don't, their tuning fork is off and they can be numb to what might just be a morale issue or momentum issue, a misunderstanding. Um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's too robotic sometimes.
0: When you think about your past 16 years, what is there, are there any patterns of bad decisions? Are there any things that you look back and you say, yeah, you know what? I did something 10 years ago that we do differently now. And that led to a poor decision where now we have a better process or system in place to minimize the potential for that bad decision.
1: I think it's, it's always going to be around people and the development of people we, we promote from within 50% of the time here. And, um, when you're, when we were younger, earlier on, you would bring somebody in from the outside, um, a leader in from the outside, and it would take them a while to ramp. And, uh, they sometimes sink or swim on their own, right. You're almost kind of watching this person run a treadmill without. Out helping them out and and then you're developing leaders from the inside and how are you giving them the skills they're going to need for the next role those are two different tracks and we've gotten good um, through our performance center and rely university of setting people up for success when they come in and setting people up for success as they grow into new positions and try new things and that's the thing that we would routinely get wrong again we're not perfect now but we spend about 4% of our revenue on training and development and um, letting people know when they come in from the outside, I don't need a home run right out of the gate. Like I don't need you to come in and make some big crazy decision to justify why I hired you. I need you to listen and learn. And Nick Saban has that famous saying that he says that, you know, I didn't hire you to come in and do it your way. I hired you to come in and learn it our way um, and, and help us execute and giving people that permission on the way in. Um, But then developing talent internally, it's different. They almost feel like an imposter syndrome. Like they get promoted from a manager to a director and you have to find helpful ways to let them know that their director title is not lowercase. Like they need to like come in and lead. You're there for a reason. You deserve to be there. And so it's that situational development that I think we've gotten better at over time.
0: What does your university entail?
1: So, uh, it's got multiple components, it's got a technical component. So we grow you technically, uh, we have a leadership Academy and I teach about 75% of the material. It's, a uh, three consecutive days a month, uh, for four months, uh, the classes come in and there's, there's pre work, there's post work in between those sessions. And it's all around how uh, we make decisions within our values. Um, then there's, uh, process like approach. So we have a, we have a mind gym that, uh, uh, is built. Uh, we start every meeting out with a mindset moment and what we find is the first 10 minutes of the meeting is helping people step out of their last meeting and be present in this current meeting. And so we talk about, um, so usually a video clip, we talk about it and it just really resets the room. It gets people in the right headspace. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, performance based training, It's leadership development, and then it's technical training. And that technical training could be not just coding, um, but sales training, all all of the different functions of the company. And so um, you do it on onboarding. When you first come in, everybody goes through the same four days of this is ReliQuest. This is how we make decisions. Before they ever learn anything or meet anyone on their team, they're going to learn how we make decisions. We're a values-based decision-making organization. And then there's just touch points and recycle things throughout the year um, that we do for both the mental performance side, um, the technical training side. So kind of look at it as like a filter in a pool. You want to, people should always be learning, uh, should always be learning something.
0: What are your values? Uh, when I say yours, I mean, rely We're
1: going to be accountable, helpful, adaptable, and focused. Um, you know, accountability starts with self-awareness. We're going to have a laser focus, um, and just be helpful. And that's uh, and what I talk about is we have operations all over the world. And I can go anywhere in the world and people understand the word accountability. They learn, understand what it means to be helpful. They understand adaptability and they understand focus. And so if we can um, train and develop leadership, train and develop decision-making all around those values, it, 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 it removes friction from the organization and allows us to kind of just deliver for the customer. What's the problem that we're solving for and how do we deliver for the customer?
0: Are those values aligned with your values?
1: They are, yeah, they are. In fact, though, but I didn't choose all of them. Uh, my, the only rule I had, I we had a, a group. This is probably, I don't know, ten years ago now. We had a group of, of up and coming leaders. They weren't leaders in the company at the time. I pulled a collection of just high performers together, and said my only, my only one value that I want is accountability. It's just something that that's always been uh, core for me um, growing up. And uh, they came back and they created uh, they came back with the other three focused adaptability and be helpful which i thought was the best one um, and then about a year and a half later the entire company in an offsite broke up into four groups and define those values and i didn't participate in that either i wanted it to come from them and we had three hours allocated and we had a facilitator that was going to go through it and they were done in 45 minutes and that's our the, the, the definition Definitions we have today. We've tweaked them over time to fit all the branding and all of that stuff, the internal and external messaging, but it's pretty amazing.
0: It's interesting. When I think about values, I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is the order of the values. And I think the order of the values are really essential because you lit up about accountability, um, but then you actually lit up even more when you said, be helpful. Like it sounds like what they came up with may be the number one value at ReliaQuest. And to me, this is helpful because if accountability is our number one value, then you know adaptability, be helpful, and focus are behind that. And it doesn't mean that those aren't still valuable, they're still top values, but when in doubt, the team is gonna be accountable. But if being helpful is our number one value, and then it's backed up by accountability, that's a different order. And it changes how we operate and how we engage with people. So am I hearing you right to say, like when in doubt, we want our people to be helpful, whether that's be helpful with each other, be helpful with our customers, be helpful to our shareholders. Um, it sounds like that's the driver. And from there, you're able to value focus, uh, adaptability and accountability. Am I hearing it right? Or am I making assumptions on my end?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, just directionally in life, it's just uh do. Do what you say you're going to do, right? That that's pretty helpful. I mean, that's that's accountability. I think accountability is helpful, and I think um, uh, that that is our focus. Is just um, it's not as simple as do the right thing, but um, we're going to make it right, and we're going to make mistakes. Uh, but when that customer calls and needs something, we're going to be there. And um, if you if you treat your community that way, I mean, we uh, all our six global operators centers. We all give back to around the same uh, groups, Junior Achievement, Boys and Girls Club, um, Think Big for Kids, and we, we donate 4,000 of hours of our time and 1.5 million a year to those programs. Why? Because it's helpful, and we're accountable to our in- industry and cybersecurity and raising awareness of those things. So it's embedded in everything that we do. So I think that's a fair assessment on being helpful.
0: It's interesting, when I think about great CEOs, I always say there's like three main buckets that I look for. And most good CEOs have two of these three, but it's very, very hard to find like CEOs that have all three. And the buckets for me are um, like a vision and inspiration. You could put like creativity in that um, to sort of guide the company where you're going. Think of a lot of these tech CEOs that people admire, they are dreamers and they are able to have a vision and inspire with that vision. Um, based on our conversation today, I actually think you probably fill that bucket, uh, you know, pretty well. Uh, and then the second one are like people skills: can they coach? Can they manage? Uh, you talked about the mindset of the organization. I think that's the second bucket. It's clear that that's. Probably your unfair advantage over most CEOs. You're, you seemingly are obsessed with this stuff, which is why we're having this conversation. And then the third one, which I'm not sure about, is attention to detail. Uh, and I call that almost like the legal finance, you know, MBA type person, where they are going to look at a deal and know um, the ins and outs of it and really get into the contract. And it's not as sexy, but back to the university that you all teach, you do need to know technical skills if you're going to work in, in your environment. And it does matter that you have the intelligence to, to figure that stuff out and the attention to detail. How would you rank your ability to, to play in those buckets? And I'd love to have you score yourself out of 10. So um, give yourself a square out of 10 on the, on the vision uh, square out of 10 on the, the people skills and yourself a score out of 10 on the attention to detail. And there's one caveat. You cannot use seven, uh, seven's a cop out. Um, no sevens allowed. Uh, you can take the no seven role to your organization if you haven't heard of that before, but I find people like to say seven cause it's safe. They sound humble and they don't sound arrogant. It's like somewhere in the middle and they like just being there. Um, but you, you can't go to seven. So let's start with vision and inspiration. Like where, how would you, how would you score yourself?
1: I'd score myself pretty high. I mean, uh, you know, my, I have a maniacal focus on the problem that we solve, um, and enjoy the creativity it takes to get there. I actually struggle sometimes, uh, as we've gotten larger, my need to be creative can, can damage the company a little bit because it create, create, you know, we change messaging too much or pivot, you know, too much. And so, um, as we've gotten larger, I've had to be more CEO and less founder. And that's a struggle sometimes. Um, and I think I've talked to a lot of people. I know you work a lot of people. i I think that's a pretty common struggle. Very. Um, so I'd probably give myself, you know, I'd say an eight there. Um, I would say attention to detail is very high. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't believe this. I started my career in accounting as an auditor. So, uh, um, so I have a very high attention to detail. I will say I lack patience for um, data for the sake of data or too much detail. If you send me a three page email, I I just, I'm not, I'm not reading that. Um, But if you tell me a number, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that number. Um, And I think it's the small things that matter, right? In our events, how we show up uh, right down to where we put our logo and what kind of swag we buy it all matters. Um, So I'd give myself probably a nine on detail on people. And I am so focused on the mindset and performance, but I'll, I'll say um, one thing I'm working on now, as we've gotten bigger, I don't dedicate enough walking around time anymore. I don't just go and show up, right. Drop in and have a conversation. I get too rigid in the things that I'm working on. Um, and I've gotten into this feeling where I don't want to interrupt, right. You know, you, know, you start to walk into a room and everyone's working and oh gosh the ceo's here and DMAC has worked with me a lot on this and you know that's why we have some things that we do internally and some stuff talking mindset with murph and you know defining the cliches and they call he calls me murph everybody just calls me murph just to keep that lure of oh the ceo um but i'd probably give myself a six uh because i need to do better um at walking around and spending more time in our onboarding classes, um, popping in the team meetings. I probably need to, over the years, I've directly mentored so many people, but I made the comment Saturday, uh, one of those mentors is now president. mentees is now president of the company that I just don't do that enough anymore. And so that's an area where I feel like I've gotten to be too much of a CEO and not enough of that founder mentality. So I'd score myself lower on that end with, which may be surprising to you because it's something I care deeply about um, and I miss. And I actually think I'd feel more fulfilled if I did more of it.
0: It's an interesting concept and construct. And I love how you separate founder and CEO, because I've always felt like I could absolutely found stuff, but CEO, it that doesn't, necessarily get my juices flowing as much as founding and creating ideas and ideating. I also imagine if we did that same scoring system for the company, you know, how is the company's attention to detail and able to dot I's and cross T's? How are, how's their people skills? And and how are they from a vision standpoint, an inspiration standpoint? I, I would imagine actually your your people bucket would probably be really, really high. And the other ones might be a tad lower. So it might also be what the company needs for you to actually allow your people to own the, the people skills necessary. Um, I'm wondering in my head, though, as we're having this conversation about dreams, because 16 years is a long time in business. Yeah. And you're not, you're not an old guy. Um, so I'm curious, like, what are your dreams? What is your vision uh, for the future? If you are thinking 10 years from now, like, what is, what is the dream for Murph? I'm calling you Murph now. We've gotten to Murph. Love it. Um, And like, what's Murph's dream 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now?
1: You know, Brian, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know that i take enough time to have the dream i think you have hopes i have i have hopes and that's generally hopes for you know my kids you know i want um i have this idea of renee and i over the next 20 years and the things that we get to see and experience um i had an entrepreneur tell me once that uh they they calculate like their success, they built a really big business and they kind of look back on it and look at the number of millionaires that they made over time. And that's how they try to quantify. And cause I ask them like, why do you keep doing this and keep, keep grinding? And they just look at these opportunities that I can create. And so for me, um, I hope that ReliQuest goes on on. And because of ReliQuest, we have people that have been a part of this company now or at some point in the future or some point in the past that go on and build their own ReliQuest, right? And I've got um, my vision really being a state of Florida, you know, born and raised in the state of Florida and we're not Silicon Valley. We're not um, New York and Boston. It's been really hard to grow a technology company here. We don't have the same resources and support system. And so I'm the chair of the board of something called Embark Collective. And there's a hundred... Early stage, high growth technology companies headquartered there throughout the state. It's here in Tampa. And my dream is the rocking chair view is that it's much easier over time to grow a substantial technology company in the state of Florida and that um, we connect to university programs here in Florida the way they have in so many other areas. And that, you know, I'm from Middleburg, Florida. It's a small town outside of Jacksonville. My dad retired as a diesel mechanic. My mom worked inside a grocery store. Whole career. It took me a long way to discover entrepreneurship. It wasn't for the movies and 1980s classic like Secret of My Success or Pretty Woman, right? Everyone loved Julia Roberts. I wanted to know what Richard Gere did. I thought the briefcase was cool and the big buildings. And, you know, how do we connect people to that opportunity so they can ultimately go chase their own possible? I want to remove my dream is more of removing the friction for others to be able to build what I build much larger, much faster, and they and to make them more multiple and the community more multiple. And that's why we have high school programs. And, you know, we had 30 interns start yesterday um, as part of this. And so I get excited. Best feeling of my life was, you know, I feel like your best feeling of your life is getting a job. And I just remember getting that offer letter from PricewaterhouseCoopers and um, to be an auditor. I don't know how anybody could be excited about being an auditor, I don't know, but um, that was still one of the best feelings of my life. So I think my dream is, and it's the best thing I think we do is hire people, but how do I help other entrepreneurs and other founders and and other entities make it more possible for people to build um, companies like this here? And it was, it was brutally difficult to get this done uh, in Tampa. Uh, at the time we raised capital in 2016, it was, I think, the largest capital raise in the southeast that uh, was 30 million dollars. Um, now you know, anybody, 30 million is nothing, right? So, um, how do we how do we make it more possible? So I don't know if that's a dream or not, but that's kind of the vision, the hope that I have, I would say.
0: You mentioned your parents. And when I asked D Mag Darren, uh, once again, who connected us, said, Hey, what are some things I should know about him that I might not know from his bio or from the internet? You said, well, his brother is an interesting guy. Uh, I believe he's the president of Publix, which is a grocery store. You mentioned yeah. your mom working in a grocery store. And I'm curious about what did your parents instill in you and your brother? I don't know if there's other Murphs as well, but maybe specifically around you and your brother that has caused you both to take leadership roles in big companies and organizations. Uh, what is in the the sort of sauce that that your parents were cooking up when you were kids?
1: Yeah. And my oldest brother is, uh, he, he's a special agent in charge of the drug enforcement agency. So he's done, done pretty well in a different, uh, in a t- much different role than Kevin and I have, but, uh, I'd say no one ever had to sit us down and say, you should work hard. I mean, it was all around us. Um, you know, mom and dad, we, we lived a great life, but they struggled to, you know, lower middle-class they fought through it, stayed married, took care of their kids. Um, you know, did the right thing, were honest. I mean, all of these kind of things that we we think uh come easy, but it's really hard. I mean, they were married and had a kid at 18 and started their life and that grind and that struggle and we got to watch it, you know, uh, real time. So I think there's an element for Rob and Kevin and I where uh we need to pay it forward. You know, we we appreciate what mom and dad did and um we we never had to. They never complained about getting up and going to work every morning. And you know, being a diesel mechanic is a grueling, brutal, difficult job. Um, and I never saw Dad complain. He still took us to soccer practice afterwards and prioritized our health and safety. So we owe it to them. We got to go chase that. Possible. They made it. You know, I was born on third base with just had, having parents that you know stayed together. And 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 then I think not wanting to be around that struggle. Like we wanna, we wanna provide, right? We wanna build that life for our kids. And um, so I learned more through observation from my parents than ever any motivational speech. Uh, so, and even now when I get together, my mom and dad, I rarely talk about ReliQuest. It's, it's a weird thing in um, the family and Kevin doesn't talk about Publix and Rob doesn't talk about the DEA, right? So it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a weird thing. It's all observation.
0: Yeah. What can you go on into that a little more? You all don't talk about that. Um, and it's a weird thing. What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, you know, um, we're a very close family, but, uh, I, I, my dad is really proud and probably wants to know everything he can about ReliaQuest. And for whatever reason, when, when we're together and the kids are around, I just, it's the last thing I want to talk about. And, um, it's something I think about on a regular basis that, Hey, I should, I should, bring them around more and show them more and let them be a part of it. I just kind of kept my head down and, um, and grind. And, um, and, you know, sometimes you forget on the periphery that, you know, they're, they're cheering you on and they want to be a part of it. Right. Um, and then time blows by, they're getting older. So it's just, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's strange that way, very close family, but, um, we don't sit around and celebrate our wins very much. It's, uh, it's something we should probably work on more.
0: 30 years from now, if your kids are in a similar situation to you and you're their dad, what would you want them to do and share with you or not share? Or what do you want dinner to sound like and look like?
1: I just want to hear how they're doing. You know, I would want them to, you know, how are they thinking about whatever it is they're doing? How are they thinking about whatever moment of time? Not what'd you do today? Or, you know, let's talk about that trophy or, but it's, Hey, how are you feeling? You know, are you having fun? um, what's fun, what isn't fun, you know? Um, and I think, uh, for my kids, I'll learn a lesson of, you know, if they're anything like me, my daughter's a lot like me is I'm just going to show up, you know, I'll just, I'll show up in the corporate building and say hello. So I just need to be, uh, that fun old Murph, uh, they're like, Oh, look Murph walking around the halls again. So, um, I think it's, uh, it's different growing up, my parents were grinding and scrapping and clawing. And, um, and, you know, I've taken that it's it's changed my style a little bit of being a father. And, um, you know, what I talk to the kids about my dad's amazing. You send these just amazing texts to my daughter and my son around whatever's going on in their life, and I'll get a one word answer, you know, so it's, uh, I think, when you become a grandfather, you get better insight. So hopefully, I'll get the same benefit.
0: I've got this idea that I've been, I just, I was writing about it earlier this morning and it's just coming up for me. And it's probably a culmination of (laughs) watching Ted Lasso and, (laughs) and, and watching my kids and, and just thinking about things, you know, we've had on, I don't know, probably like 330 podcast guests at this point. And when I think about my barrier for entry, when someone like Darren reaches out and says, Hey, I think you'd love a conversation with Murph. It's, would I be interested in learning about them? And some people, I know their journey because they're more public facing and, and some are more private facing, but I try to do my research. And that's the question I'm trying to answer is, am I interested in spending an hour with them? And when I think about my interest in them, it almost never comes to let's just use you as an example, it doesn't come to how great of a dad is Murph? Is he a world-class father? Is he a world-class dad? It does go to, are they a world-class musician or actor or business person or athlete or coach or author? I get really excited to talk to world-class people in that regard. And I get the sense you do too, since you surrounded yourself with Trevor Moad, who in our world absolutely world-class we talk about nick saban you mentioned richard gear and his briefcase there's something world-class that's drawn to him but it's the briefcase and i've started to wonder about this like on my tombstone like do i want world-class author world-class podcaster world-class coach you know world-class you know speaker i want world-class dad like give me world-class dad and for some reason, especially for fathers, I think it's different for, for mothers. I think world-class moms are actually celebrated, uh, rightfully so. And they should be, but there's space for world-class moms. Like we don't hesitate to acknowledge world-class moms. Like if you watch the Emmys or the Grammys, it's like world-class mom, like mom, you're the real MVP, right? Like we hear this stuff, but dad, like we don't, we don't have a hall of fame for world-class dads and we don't admire. And when I'm playing golf with my buddies, we're not talking about, did you see what that guy did the other day with his son? Or (laughs) did you see him at soccer practice and how he like communicated with his daughter? And yeah, I know with Kobe, there was this whole girl dad thing that, that, you know, started to come up and we hear some of that, but I'm, I'm curious, like, why, why aren't we celebrating world-class dads? And what can we do to do that? And you have a 1200 person organization. Like, do you celebrate world-class dads in your organization? I don't know too many companies that say we really want world-class fathers. And maybe it's where I am in my life and maybe it's lasso, or maybe it's like going through an experience recently with one of my kids where one of my clients said, Hey, you're a great dad. Like these things are in the last month. I was like, shit, like, that's, yeah, like, great. Like, but I've aspired to be world class at all these other things. And right now, the number one thing I want to be is a world class father. And by the way, it does get in the way of some of those other things I want to be world class in. It it can get in the way sometimes. So I just went on a huge tangent uh, and, and maybe a soapbox, but... How do you think about that as a leader, and how do you think about that as a father? Um, like, what can we do to try to embrace this notion of being a world-class dad?
1: I, one, I, I love, I love the thought process, and as you're talking about, it, I'm reflecting. Like, I don't. I mean, I, I don't, uh, I don't celebrate enough. We have a, a president in the company here that started at 19 as an intern and worked his way up, and I routinely talk about just, hey, he's a great husband, great father. He's got four kids under the age of 6 and he's just in it, you know. He can have uh, you know, feeding two kids and cleaning up a spill and being on a forecast call, right? And I think that COVID did do that for us. We saw people in their natural habitat, so I probably think about it more. Um, but I think the thing that I could do better as a leader is ask about people's families more, like take that interest. How how are they doing, you know? Maybe it's sponsoring those sports teams and those things. We do the paternity leave and all that stuff. Um, but I don't know that I'm as forward with that as I should be. Um, one thing that, you know, Trev told me years ago is I do talk about my family more, talk about, uh, my kids more around the company. Um, but you're right. There's, there's gotta be some way to celebrate moms and dads. Right. And, um, and it doesn't have to be the token, bring your kid to work day once a year, but how do you do it all the time. Um, it's an interesting question. I just think from a dad perspective, we're always taught to to go to work for the family, to go to school for the family, to work for the family. When you're younger, you're doing it for your parents. When you get married, you're doing it for you know your wife or your husband and your family, whatever the dy- the dynamic is there. And so we're always doing something for them. And it kind of goes back to, yeah, I'm world-class in my job and I'm doing it for the family, but we don't ever lead with the family. So it's an interesting, um, I think you're on to something and Ted Lasso is you're dead on. Like what an amazing job of writing and storytelling in a way that, you know, he knows he, he was a human first. Right. Uh, but still world-class.
0: And by the way, defining what world-class dad is might be bringing your lunch pail to work, not being home for dinner, um, waking up at 5 a.m., not making the kids breakfast. Like I'm not here to define what world-class dad means for each person, but I would think that's a valuable question to ask each person, what does world-class dad mean to you? Your dad had to do certain sacrifices to just keep food on the table and he did the best he could with what he had to provide an opportunity for his boys to maybe have a different lifestyle, but it sounds like he was still there. And now it sounds like he's a world-class grandpa. And yeah. to your point, like we don't always value that I think in men and, and look, there are other challenges that that occur with women and that could be a whole nother podcast, especially in, in, In the corporate world. But it's just something that's new for me. A lot of my clients are men. And I find we, we don't always hold ourselves accountable to being world class because we justify that we're world class at our job. And so because we're world class at our job, we are off the hook to being world class father. And I think it's BS like, and and by the way, world-class doesn't mean that you do everything for your kid and you're a helicopter parent. Like, I don't even think your kid needs you to be at all their games. Like I think that stuff is kind of ridiculous. My kid doesn't, if my kid needs me to be at a game to feel valuable in a sports setting, I think I'm doing it wrong. So these are my opinions and I think we all should have our own opinions on what it looks like, but it is interesting. Like how many of those elite performers that we all talk about we're bad dads and it's just a reality. Like how many people that are world-class at a thing were not great dads and we often excuse it. And um, like, it's, it's something that's kind of, you can hear it in me. Like I am really wondering about it. And um, for you, given where you're at in your career and you're about, you know, 10 years ahead of me with parenting um, it's something that I strive for over the next 10, 15 years. Cause as you know, with the 17 and 14 year old, like this game is almost over for you <laughs> and it is. it's almost over for you. And it's not because being a dad, a, they didn't choose you, uh, like they didn't sign up for you to come be their CEO. They didn't sign up. Like, you chose them a and then B it is forever. Like dad, you don't, you don't stop. Like you might sell this company one day or you might IPO and you might not be the CEO anymore, but dad, like, hopefully we live, you know, we die before our kids and, and it's forever. Like that yep. role is a forever role and it can morph and it can evolve. It could change. But I think before they're 18, it is a very, very different job than post 18. And so those 18 years, like how are we being world-class at that? And then what does world-class dad look like beyond those years? It looks very different, but you can still be world-class. So um, I could go on and on on this and love it. that's not what we're here for. But uh, Murph, this has been a blast. Um, first of all, I want to thank you. I think what you are doing, I'm not sure you realize, but from like, I study this stuff all over the place. And I think the investment that you've made, uh, you know, 4% on training and development, um, bringing in uh, DMAC to to really be embedded into your culture, uh, creating a university, doing a podcast, like I, I'm not sure you realize, but it is world class as far as how you're pouring into your people and it is inspiring. And um, I, I do not think it's a light thing, which is why we're having this conversation right now. Why I said yes uh, to DMAC is I think what you've created on the people side is a model that other organizations can. Um, leverage and use to make sure that their people are at their best, and the people are going to drive that business to get to where you want it to go. So, I just want to thank you for for investing in our world because a lot of people don't, and you took a risk. And by the way, yeah, a lot of our stuff is cheesy. By the way, Ted Lasso is cheesy. Um, it's it's okay. Like by the way, Eric Polstra is cheesy, and. He's arguably the best coach in the NBA, right? Like it, Pete Carroll, cheesy. Like I could go on and on. John Wooden, cheesy. Like I, it's okay to to be Don Staley, cheesy. Like dude, cheesy is not necessarily a bad thing, but thank you for, for putting language to this, having clarity on on how you want to do it and creating a vision that really unlocks it. I know you're active on LinkedIn. I actually saw your post about onboarding. Uh, another time, maybe the two of us will talk because I think onboarding is one of the things that people often don't invest enough in. Uh, so totally it's great. awesome to see how you're investing in onboarding. Um, so I know you're on LinkedIn. I also know you're on Twitter. Uh, can you share where people can find you online? And if they want to learn more about ReliaQuest, where's the best place for them to do that as well?
1: Sure. So, uh, relyquest.com, uh, obviously LinkedIn, just Brian Murphy. You'll see the relyquest, uh, profile there. Same thing for Twitter. And, and we do have the do the things podcast where we talk, um, about some of these things internal, external, we have some guests on. So, um, you know, three different areas, uh, to reach me. I, I can't dance. So I'm not on TikTok. Uh, so I, I stay off of that one and just really appreciate, uh, you Brian and having me on, I've enjoyed the conversation and you left me with this great mental challenge to go away and, and think about the data equation which i'm, I'm fired up to do so i've uh, really enjoyed this thank you very much
0: well let's continue it because it's new in my brain so it's not fully formed and fully baked um By the way, on on LinkedIn, he's Brian Murphy. ReliaQuest is the handle. And then on Twitter, he's Brian Murphy RQ. So those are the places you can follow him. And then their website is ReliaQuest.com. So you can go there. They got a beautiful website with all kinds of good stuff. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at StrongSkills.co slash podcast, including my conversation with Darren many moons ago. I hope it's okay. It's it's probably one of our first ones. Uh, It may not be. uh, For Forgive me for that if it's not, but, but Darren's a rock star. And then TikTok, I actually can dance and I'm not on TikTok either for <laughs> other reasons. Um, but maybe one day um, I'll, I'll dance for, for Murph and for all of you listening. So thanks for being here, Murph. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross uh, sometime soon as well.
1: Look forward to it. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam beginning of every year I'm unqualified for 16 years to be the CEO because the company's never experienced you know a lot of what the new year is going to bring and um, so I just am trying to be real thoughtful around am I keeping up with the business Um, am I still putting the same attitude energy and effort behind it Um, and am I you know showing the respect am I carrying the burden of the business correctly.